Yeah, so we're in the middle of the Story of God series, and uh, I sure have been enjoying seeing the, like, arc, meta-narrative is the fancy word, of, uh, of what God sort of knits together throughout all of Scripture. And it's been neat to see the themes that bubble up throughout the whole thing. And so today, we're going to talk about um, the, the death and re- resurrection of Jesus, which, is, which really is the kind of the climax of the story in lots of ways. So it'll be fun to unpack that. But before we get to Jesus' death and re- resurrection and how that sort of, um, you know, really is the climax, we're going to just do a little quick recap so that we're all on the same page here. And I uh, uh, just wanted to catch us up on some of the, the, the themes that have, we've been uncovering throughout all of Scripture. We started in, gosh, seven weeks ago or something, we started in Genesis, and we've been seeing all these things kind of bubble up and uh, these repeated themes that, again, really come to a head in what we'll talk about today. So the first thing that I wanted to you, you recap here, the first thing is that we've been noticing that God longs for reconciliation with his people. Um, there's this, the, 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 the heartbeat of who God is is to be one again with his people. And so, of course, all the way, if you think back all the way to seven or eight weeks ago, um, we kind of screwed that up, and, uh, and we created this separation between us and God through sin. And God is perfect love, and he can't be around sin, so he's kind of got his hands tied a little bit going, okay, well, I want to be with you, and I created you to be close with you. I created to be actually so close with you that we're, we're one. Like, he, that, the point was relationship. But now you've chosen not to be, and so what are we going to do? How to, how's this going to work? Because I can't force you to do it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be love anymore. So how are we going to see this happen? And so God embarks on this crazy long journey that we're still in the middle of, actually, of reconciling us with him. So he longs for that. He longs for a relationship. And it's important to know that as his, like, heartbeat. Um, there's this thing called the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, where he makes a covenant with Abraham, who's the father of the whole Hebrew nation. And he says, I am going to use your family to bless not only your family, but the rest of the world through you. So it's this crazy promise that God makes way back in the day going, I'm going to bless everybody through you. And he's going to hold true to that. All nations will be blessed. Last week, Paul did an amazing job talking about how we're no longer foreigners. And could you imagine being there in Jesus' time when typically all those promises and all those amazing things were just reserved for the, the Israelites, for the Jewish people. And then Jesus comes along and starts saying that he starts becoming the... F- becoming the fulfillment of that, going, it's not just for the Jewish people anymore. Now I'm going to use, like, all the nations are going to be blessed. That's going to start to come true now, where this family, these people, are going to be used to bless the whole world. And so imagine that being such good news for the foreigners, for the Gentiles of that time, going, wow, I get a piece of that, but I'm kind of a sinner. I'm not, I'm not welcome into that. And it's like, no, it's for you too. So that's crazy. And uh, Jesus starts preaching that the kingdom is for everyone, which is just would be mind-blowing back in the day. Um, and then this other theme that we've been seeing is there's this journey of reconciliation. Now, we've seen this graph a couple of times now, and uh, this just keeps happening, where uh, the, in order to be reconciled with God, this little journey just happens over and over and over again. And uh, to, just to kind of go through it, I mean, if you look at the gray words, this is the, uh, this is the, the first sort of exodus out for, the, for, the, for the Jewish people, where they're in Egypt, then they have Passover, where they're saved from, you know, that, that angel of death who comes and sweeps across, if you remember, sweeps across the land, and that, then they come to the Red Sea after they're set free from, from, from Egypt, and they have this baptism moment where they go through the Red Sea, and then there's this desert where it's really hard, and it's 40 years long, and everyone's upset, and, but somehow that leads towards this war against Jericho, where they take the land, and now they're in the promised land, and that kind of, that's, this sort of arc happens all just over and over and over again. The problem is, 
is that the Israelites aren't super good at this. And uh, they spend most of the time, like if you just add it up all the time, they spend most of their times in exile. And so, you know, be it Egypt or be it in Babylon later, uh, this, this, this beautiful ark that leads towards, you know, shalom, that leads towards peace um, uh, in the physical just doesn't happen a ton. And the Israelites spend a lot of their time in some kind of slavery or some kind of oppression, waiting for, for a Messiah, waiting for someone to come save them. Uh, so another thing that we've learned, the last little point, is that this, this journey is the, it's the way to relationship somehow. Where, again, remember that the point of all this stuff is God wants to be close to us, and God is trying to execute this rescue plan of us being able to be near him, and so he's continually trying to purify his people through this process. He's trying to bring them through this desert where mostly the main sin that the Jewish people kept having was they kept worshiping other gods, either themselves or, 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 or just gods that weren't as powerful who weren't the real true God, Yahweh. And so he kept bringing them through these, these, these trials and these deserts to try to usurp themselves or their own ability as king so that he could be king again, so that he could rule, so that he could be the true father that he knows that they need him to be. But sometimes, of course, we do this every day. We reject him all the time. So he longs to be in relationship. Uh, looking at this, 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 this parabola, I've, uh, like, what is it about? Let's just stop and pause for a second. What is it about this style of journey? This whole, you know, being saved and then brought through it, brought through some kind of desert and then, and then having to fight through something. And then at the end of it, sort of, uh, you know, there being peace because there's like, you know, love wins, and this whole dethroning of ourselves as king thing, like, what about that is, uh, is good news? Like, why does it, why is this the plan? Don't you ever just get upset sometimes that this is the plan? That, like, it seems whenever there's growth, there's some kind of, some kind of baptism moment where we're having to uh, uh, let go of ourselves being the ultimate authority. There's this like open-handedness and this desert experience going, wow, I can't get myself through this. Wow, I can't actually make this happen. And this seems to continually be the journey. Why? Um, if you look all the way back, again, I know we're really doing a top-level thing here right now, but if you look all the way back to the original lie, if you remember the serp serpent in the garden, there's only ever, actually ever been one lie. There's only ever been one um, mantra being spoken against God. And the, you know, the, ser the serpent said this, he says, he, the serpent doesn't say I can be a better God than God. That's a hard battle to fight. You're not going to win that one. He was pretty powerful. He just did the whole creation, the world thing. And, but all that the serpent has to say is you can be a better God than God. That's all he has. That's the only battle he actually has to win. So that's, that's the original lie. Is did God really say? And y if you eat this and you take matters into your own hands, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. You can be a better God than God. That's the main original lie. And so we look, something about this process is trying to uh, overcome this fact that we have bought into this lie that we can be a better God than God. And so over and over again, we see all these desert moments and we kind of look back on them and like, wow, that was a really, they went through some hard stuff. And if you dig into it over and over and over again, they kept believing this lie that they could be a better God than God. And so I feel it's really vulnerable for God. One of the things that stood out from this series to me a lot was, um, was uh, God out of his perfect love wants to bring us through these desert moments to almost prove to us in some ways how he's a better God than than we can be. Yeah. And uh, imagine, the, a line that's really stood out from a, from a sermon a few weeks back was, imagine how vulnerable it must be for God, 
to know that in order to show us sometimes that the rightful place that we have is not as the ultimate authority in our lives, imagine how vulnerable it must be to lead us into desert moments and desert trials, knowing that that's where we'll probably find him the best, that's where we'll probably see him as the most good and the most powerful and the source of our salvation, but also the place where we're most likely to go, this is dumb. Like, I don't, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for how painful this would be. I didn't think that this was going to be so much about, you know, cleaving away things from my heart. Like, no, 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 I, I just want you to fix my problems. I don't actually want to be dethroned as the king of my own heart. <laughs> and I've, for a long time, have resented deserts. And, uh, but I, it's hard to deny that in those places is where we find God the most. But I just think about him as like a father. Like, it, it's, it's helpful to remember as we, uh, even as we unpack the, you know, the Jesus death and resurrection part. It's important to remember that the heart of who God is is this father who longs to be with his children. It's this father who longs to be with his children. And these moments are just like, they're really complicated because how, you know, how complicated is discipline of a child? It's really, really tricky. And I can imagine it being very difficult to discipline your child knowing that that's the place where they could resent you the most. Or it could be the place where they discover how loved they really are. And that could be tricky. So this is God's kind of conundrum, as it were, going, uh, how are we going to do this? The point is relationship. The point is you choosing relationship, actually. The point is you seeing how, uh, how you need to be, I need to be your God, and yet I can't make you. So we're going to walk this out over a super long period of time, trying to figure out how to have God's kingdom of love and rulership actually come to earth through us without forcing us to do things. You see, how, you see how tricky God has this? I can't believe how well he's doing, even given the, like it's, it's amazing how, I don't know how he's doing it. I think that's why it's taken so long. But uh, he just refuses to skip us somehow in his plan to save the world. And I don't know why, I don't know why he just doesn't fix it all sometimes, but we're gonna unpack it all, like fix it all without us, I mean, but we're gonna unpack why well, I think that's not his plan. So Jesus arrived on the scene and he's, uh, he's preaching all this stuff. And for the Jews of the day, it kind of seems like this is it. Like this is the new Messiah. This is the guy who's going to save everything. He's going to take over the. He's going to take over the world. And this is the one who we who we've been like waiting for. This is the the new David kind of right. This is the new David, and uh, he's going to set us free from the Romans. I think is what they were probably they're probably hoping for, right? They're being oppressed yet again by some outside government because, you know, God was disciplining them in some other way. And uh, Jesus comes on the scene and he's healing people and he's doing all these amazing teachings and he's building this huge following like Paul talked about yesterday of not only the Jews, but also of Gentiles and, and sinners and all the people that the Jews didn't even want to be around. And there's this, there's this huge following that's following him. And uh, uh, they are, they're hoping... Those, all those people are hoping that, they're gonna, that Jesus is going to now conquer through force the prevailing oppression on their nation, right? That's what they're hoping he's going to do, to set himself up as king in the natural. Uh, here's the problem, uh, is, uh, or here's the issue with that sort of point of view that I think they were hoping for, is that the problem actually isn't outside oppression. This isn't the main thing Jesus is trying to conquer. The problem isn't outside oppression. The problem, the one that he's actually going after, is the thing that's separating you from God. Remember, he's establishing the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is about being close with God and, and in relationship with him. So remember, it's not, he's not coming to set, us, set 
the, those people free from their current government oppression. He's wanting to set them free from something a whole lot trickier called the sin in their hearts, called the fact that as individuals, they don't follow Yahweh. They don't follow God. And so it's a much deeper battle going on. The problem isn't Romans, <laughs> the Romans of the time. The problem was much deeper. Uh, and Jesus starts saying crazy things. Like, um, he starts saying crazy things like to prove that the kingdom he's attempting to bring about isn't of this world. And he starts saying crazy things like um, uh, people go, hey, should we give, uh, should we pay taxes to Rome? Like these are the Jews saying, should we pay taxes to Rome? Because again, they're hoping that Jesus is going to set them free from Roman oppression, right? And he says, should we pay taxes to Rome? And he goes, yeah, give, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, yeah. but give to God that which is God's. And people are just like, wait, what? Like, no, no, no. You're supposed to set us free from this pain that we're in. It's like, actually, no, I'm doing something else. Uh, and it has nothing to do with that. He says other things like, uh, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Maybe some of you remember this from the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. And so when I read that, I used to think like, oh, blessed are people who make peace. That's nice. Um, if you really look into it, and we learned this in Israel too, it was really neat. Peacemakers were actually a term that were used for people who wanted to make peace with Rome. Like the Jews who wanted to make peace with Rome and accept the punishment that God was giving us and not be so hostile against Rome. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the people who are taking punishment from the Romans. Blessed are the people who are admitting that they're losing and admitting that God's trying to teach them something. Blessed are those people. And again, this is, everyone's just going like, what is happening? Like you're doing something else entirely here. And it has nothing to do with Rome, which is annoying because I want to be set free from that. And God's like, no, no, no. I'm after something a whole lot deeper. So, and he's, again, one more thing. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So again, I'm establishing a new kingdom, one that's not really versus Rome. It's versus your own heart somehow. And the, the solution is repent, not some kind of military force. So you see how people are really getting, like he's really having to do some serious teaching in this time. So a little question here for you, let's just try to put ourselves in the story a little bit into the modern day. What is like, what's your outside oppression that you're hoping maybe Jesus would set you free from? Like the thing that if it just went away, that'd be nice. Do you know what I'm saying? I, got, I mean, I got lots of these things. Like what, what's, what's outside oppression? I want to be, man, I, got, I want God to fix a whole bunch of stuff in my circumstances. I wish you'd do this and I wish you'd do that and I wish I had this and I wish I could be better at this and I want all of these things that are of this world that aren't necessarily bad things to want in most cases. It's just not God's primary agenda. And uh, that's a little offensive sometimes because, you know, this whole, if only you would, right? If only you would do this for me, God. But, and this is the second point, is the problem is actually internal oppression you, <laughs> which is a, kind of offensive, right? Like God is actually trying to set you free from you as the Lord of your life. And that's a super offensive thing to talk about. And that was his whole repent for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom is not about, it's about, you know, me. So Jesus is here to win the ultimate victory, restoring you with the father, which means Jesus has to conquer sin. And because we really like sin, it means he actually has to conquer us. He actually has to conquer us. So uh, it's pretty insulting, but our basic instinct is to kill competing kings. Wow. That's what we do. Like, 
if I, I want to be king of my life, it feels good and I'm in control and I can make things happen, at least in my super narrow-minded view of things that I want to see happen. And whenever there's a competing king going on, I want to kill it. I don't want to submit to it. I want to get rid of it. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a tricky thing. Let me just say that again, because I think it's important for us to see the logic here. Jesus is here to win the ultimate victory of restoring us with the Father, right? That was the whole point from back in the day, to be close with, to be close with the Father. Uh, which means Jesus has to conquer not a military power, but the actual sin in our life. And because we love that thing, it means he's trying to actually conquer our hearts and get us to submit to him. So um, because we love competing kings, uh, we love killing competing kings, metaphorically now, but it was literal back in the day because this is what happens. Uh, people are catching on that Jesus' message of salvation was one of self-denial and one of submission to him, one of, uh, not of political salvation, but of heart redemption and transformation, and one that actually costed a lot more sometimes than just, I don't know, submitting to a king who does things for us in the natural, but it had a lot more to do with our hearts going, uh, whoa, I have to lay down. Like, have you ever read this Sermon on the Mount? Like what, what Jesus is saying there about what his plan for taking, like of, of complete selflessness, of love being the thing that takes over this world and saves it, of the, of the just laying down one's life is the plan. Like that's the message he's preaching, which is super different than what the salvation that they were hoping for. So people were catching on that the message of salvation was one of self-denial. And so, willingly, Jesus was killed at the hands of those that he was trying to save. Willingly, he was killed at the hands of those he was trying to save. And even in this, like, ultimate betrayal, he says, you know, forgive them for they know, know not what they do. Which is just, he exemplifies his teachings 100%. Where he is God, he's perfect even, and yet he goes, watch me model the plan. Like, I'm going to model the plan perfectly now. I want to read Isaiah 53, um, 1 to 11, I think it is. Oh, no, 4 to 12. Sorry, it's kind of blurry. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll just read this, and uh, you can follow along if you could see that. But this is a prophecy uh, from Isaiah from way back, like way before Jesus, prophesying that he'd come. And he just, they, Isaiah just nails it. And uh, let's just read this, because it's... Um, it's one of the best summations of who Jesus was in this moment when he, took, when, he, when he died on the cross for us. So starting in verse four, he says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I mean, he talks about bringing a kingdom of love to earth that's the actual new plan. Not some more new military power to conquer in the same ways as before, but an entirely new kingdom. And uh, he deserves to be the king of that kingdom because he lived it out perfectly and he, and he, and he, and he died this death for us. So uh, the solution for us then, for all these things, is uh, to, 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 to actually submit to the true king. This is the third point here. Um, one of the things that always been a little tricky for me sometimes is how does Jesus' perfectly sacrificial death make him king? Like, how does that work? How does it make him king of our hearts? I, uh, there's a very interesting sort of um, movement in, uh, I guess it's academia these days, and there's some, 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 some professors of psychology even in Canada here that are, that are really um, proposing this idea and this is, this is secular, this is like a secular thought, okay? Are proposing this idea that uh, selflessness is actually the best way a human can live. It's actually becoming a common thing that even modern psychological, like psychoanalytic pursuits are realizing, is that selflessness is the thing that yields the most good in the world. It's like a truism that's beyond what you believe. It's even beyond like metaphysical things. It's, that's a true thing. The world becomes a better place the more and more selfless its occupants are. And, that, and so there's, a, there's some fascinating lectures online that I've been listening to. I don't recommend them as good theology, but they're really, really interesting to listen to secular professors argue for the validity of biblical studies because they just keep working. Like the principles that are talked about in them just keep being the best way to live. And so there's a strong movement in academia going, we can't just throw these Bible stories away. They're kind of saying whether they happened or not, we're not really going to talk about, whatever. But even if they're fictional stories, there's something true about them that the, that the theology behind them just keeps working. And there's this idea that uh, uh, love, meaning selflessness, is probably the best definition of love, is the playing field. Like it is, it is the thing that we're, that this world is about. There's something true about love being the playing field of all of our lives that transcends what you believe. It transcends, you know, what religion you're a part of, whether you don't have one. There's something about love being the playing field that's just true. It's very interesting to, to listen to these folks. And so um, there's a, probably my favorite verse and favorite set of verses in the whole Bible is Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And it says this, uh, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so 
there's this principle here that Jesus is like in this kingdom, in this kingdom of love that is destined to take over, uh, he is like, who else could be in charge of the kingdom of heaven that's at hand? It's him. He's exemplifying it perfectly. And what's crazier yet, he's actually abiding by the rules he created. He's abiding by them. He, he could be God and just be like, well, I'm just gonna change the rules and, and fix it all. It's like, no, no, no. I said that we were going to um, that we were going to see reconciliation happen through this kingdom of love, through selflessness. And so I'm going to conquer death by becoming the ultimate sacrificial lamb of that very playing field that I'm making the solution, which is just mind-blowing to me. And so uh, I think that there's this idea that I am a worthy king of my life if the point of my life is no longer love like in its truest form. If it's about me becoming happy, if it's about me getting by, if it's about me uh, just being rather inwardly focused, um, I'm probably actually the best person for that. That's, that's, I'm the number one candidate for that. And it's been interesting to see in some of our discussion groups that our church is uh, doing, and just individual conversations between believers and non-believers. There's just fascinating conversation that goes on. And one of the, fa what, my favorite lens to look, through, to look at what, who is worth following, what is worth believing. The best criteria that I found is what is the most loving? What, what allows you to be the most loving? What, what, is, what advances this, this idea that, you know, love really is the playing field that we're operating on, so who's the best person to follow given that objective for us as humans? And uh, Jesus just stands ahead above everything else. So God looks on him, he, God looks on Jesus and says, um, sin has been paid for. The sin, all the sins of humanity has been paid for and I'm gonna look on him for that judgment. And now there's nothing separating you and I anymore. And there's this really interesting, this neat thing that happens in the temple uh, at the time in Jerusalem is before in the temple, God's presence was restricted to this, you know, the temple. And it was like the Holy of Holies. And it's, it's nuts because they'd have, the high priest would go in there once every, I don't know, however, not, not often to do whatever they do in there. I don't know what they're doing. But they had to tie a rope around the ankles of the high priest because if there was, if he had, you know, hadn't, it wasn't clean and hadn't followed all the rules like in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. If you haven't followed them perfectly, uh, he would die in God's presence and they'd have to pull him out with the rope because no one else could go in there. And so, that's how powerful God's presence was in that place. And there's this thing called the veil that sort of separated God's presence from, uh, from the rest of humanity. And when Jesus died, the veil in that temple was torn. And it's, it's an incredible metaphor for God's presence now, not just living in the temple, but being able to dwell in each one of our hearts. So it's just, the, the, it's just so poetic where um, God is... Uh, longing to be with you and walk with you and accomplish things through you because the point is relationship, remember. And so now this veil is torn because sin no longer has a hold because God looks on Jesus and goes, that's, that's the payment. That's the sacrificial lamb. That's the final blood offering. That's, I'm going to look on him now for the rest of our transgressions, which means that God's spirit can actually dwell in us and we can be part of his plan now, which is amazing. So in his resurrection, you know, God's not dead. He didn't stay dead. <laughs> he raised three days later and uh, we're empowered by his presence because of this torn veil. Uh, it, and now in our hearts, we get to actually have the power to live out this ideal 
of selfless love and be like Christ and be, and be set free from ourselves as king. And now we're just spirit empowered to carry out his kingdom, which is amazing. So again, the result of all this is remember the objective of the story of God is to relationship to be close to us. And so I, uh, I just firmly believe that the heart of the father here in this time was like, imagine how painful that is, you know, to, to, to sacrifice your son and to watch, to have to exemplify love in its fullness in order to make all this happen. Like the cost is huge. And to put ourselves in that story going, wow, like, did God really do that for me? Like, did he really do that so that he could be close with me? And again, seeing God as a father is just huge in this. So one of the things that I've been really realizing and resonating with is that uh, this idea that God longs to be in relationship with us is that we, we have these desert moments, right? And God calls us to repent. And, he, and, and, and time after time, there's these places in our lives where we go, you can't have that one. You can't be king there. You can't... Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to let you have this place. This is, this is, this is closed off to you. And, uh, and then without fail, uh, God, because I'm king of that place still, the desert happens naturally. Like it's just because I wasn't doing a good job. And so I've, I lead myself into a dark place. And God, I, you could, you could say that God allows that to happen, I suppose. So and now I'm in this dark place and I, I, I've often resented God being like, why do you keep having to lead me into these places of, of, uh, of repentance and, and deserts? And why does that seem to be the only way forward? And to me, it's this idea that uh, when we relinquish, uh, when we relinquish control is this moment where God says like, well, now I can be close to you. Like now I can be close to you. And I have had a hard time switching my way of thinking uh, to not be about behaviors or what's best for me, but to be about what's actually best for relationship with the person who created me. It's a different set of criteria. And so I, 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 uh, I look at deserts because I don't really see how, sometimes you make it through and sometimes they last for 10 years and, and I go like, God, why don't you make this happen? And why don't you set me free from the Romans? And the whole time in that place, I just if we're able to in that moment see like, what if God's just trying to be close to me, which is actually all that's going on. Like it's the whole meta narrative. It's the whole thing that if we would relinquish control, God would be like, I get to be king of your heart. And that is what's best for you. And so truth then, there's this, there's this great line in KLMS that we've been using is that truth is a person. Truth is not some set of ideas or propositions. Truth is a person. And if the person of Jesus really is the truth, then I want to walk through whatever I got to walk through to be close to him. Yeah. I'll give up whatever I got to give up to be close to that person. And I, honestly, if Christianity is just a bunch of propositions, it's a tough sell. But if it's, if it's personal and in that deepest, darkest place, we find like a love that transcends all other loves. Well, then I mean, sign me up for whatever valley you want to put me through. What, what, what makes me closer with you? I think, I look back to Jesus right before, we, I mean, we talked about this a few Sundays ago, but he's tempted in the desert and Jesus seeks out the desert because he wants to be close to his father. And it's again where he's most tempted, but it's also where he's closest. So there's this, uh, you know, an amazing verse that many of you will know. It's one of those ones maybe you memorize in Sunday school sometimes. 
but it's uh, Galatians 2.20, and it says this, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And uh, I just, uh, you know, even as I was praying this, I, pref- I found myself really overwhelmed that, uh, that God would, like, give himself for me. Like, God would, would lay down his life to exemplify the life that he would long to have for me. And then the first is, for I've been crucified with Christ, and it's long, longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Now, when I, when I used to read Christ that lives in me, I used to think uh, that was somehow some kind of transaction, and now I have Jesus in my heart. You know, like in Sunday school, maybe some of you heard that. Uh, but do you see the relational motivation behind even this verse? It's, it's, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. It's like I, I get to be with him, and I get to walk with him, and I get to have relationship with him. And you look at this whole story, and you look at it all climax in this cross, where God is desperately trying to tear away things of us not being able to dwell together. It's this, it's this super long, like complicated, tricky back and forth story of God's unbelievable desire to want to be with us and want to live with us and want to, and want to dwell in us. And the, and the plan is to be crucified with him. And the plan is to, is to relinquish control. And the plan is to submit to him. And uh, I mean, and he just did it first. He submitted to the Father's will first and he was perfect. So there's this idea, if we look back to this original lie, right, of the, original, of the enemy when he says, you can be a better God than God. It's been, the only, uh, it's been the only lie that's ever been spoken in some ways. And uh, you look at God's plan to prove the enemy wrong. That's kind of what we're looking at over the course of these last bunch of weeks. We're looking at God's plan to prove the enemy wrong. Now, if I was him, what I probably would have done is just squashed it, you know? false squish. Do you know what I mean? Like that could have been one of the plans of just like, no, shut up. Don't, don't talk to my creation because you're going to mess them up. Right? But in that, but when you do it, shush, shush. No. Instead, God's plan is he's going, watch. Watch my creation prove that accusation wrong. Through love. Through their own will to submit to me as the true king. How secure does God have to be in his perfect love to make the plan our willing laying down of our kingship and picking him even after that accusation? That's power. Squishing, is, squishing the thing is not power. That's anxiety. But in the moment going, no, 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 watch. My creation is going to realize. My creation is going to realize that I love them more than anything in this world ever could. And, and I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make that possible. In fact, I'm going to enter into their world and pay the price because I know they're going to fail at it. But that's how desperate I am to have them choose me over themselves. And so you're wrong. And watch my creation prove you wrong. And then I'll kill you. <laughs> After that. <laughs> that's victory. And I just... I, I'm so gripped by that. You look at the display on the cross, right? You look at that, and we see it in the front of lots of church buildings. 
and you, and it be, kind of becomes this, you know, people wear it around their necks and stuff, and it kind of starts to lose its oomph in some ways for me sometimes. But I look at what that is showing us of, uh, I mean, the power of that image is so striking. If you look back to the garden, you look back to the garden and you hear that original lie that we believed and still believe lots of days. And then that's the plan. That's the plan for freeing us from that lie. Like he created the system and he's gonna enter into it to prove to us how this really full submission, full sacrifice is the plan. It's a powerful image. And so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time. Like, uh, I just drove by, this is what struck me, as I drove by a church the other day, and I saw that thing as I was preparing for this, going, holy, like, you really love us. <laughs> like, you really love us. And I find myself with the, the only thing I could possibly do is go, how can I be closer to that kind of love? How can I advance that kind of kingdom? What can I lay down to be part of that as the plan? And for some reason, he's made us the plan to advance that kingdom of love. Yeah. And that's what his church is for. And that's why I'm glad to do these things with you. And, uh, and we get to do that. And we get to be like Christ. And as we, are, as we submit to his authority, and as sin is taken away from our hearts, we're close with the Father, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to advance his kingdom of love. And the whole time we're being totally significant and important with advancing that to the rest of the world while simultaneously being more loved than we could ever imagine because we get to do it with him. It's a genius plan. So I look at the cross and it's brilliance. And my, I find myself just wanting to respond to him and uh, overwhelmed with gratitude. I'm gonna invite the band back up. You guys can get plugged in. And... Uh, I just want to pray for us as we, as we end. And um, perhaps there's, you know, uh, perhaps maybe this is the first time that you heard this whole, you know, Jesus thing. Maybe, maybe if you're here and that hasn't, you haven't had the resurrection maybe unpacked for you in that way. Uh, that was a bit more complicated way of doing it because I was trying to tie the dots in from, you know, from the whole narrative of scripture. But at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, uh, we're all called with a choice to make as to who's the king of our hearts and who gets to be king of our hearts. And so I would encourage you in this, in this moment of worship uh, where we get to respond to, to really ask that question perhaps in a fresh way. Maybe if you've never asked it, it's a great time. But if you ask the question of yourself a million times, now's a good time too. To go, uh, what is the purpose of my life and who's the best king for that purpose? And I promise you that if, that, if our, that if our purpose really is love and pur our purpose really is relationship, um, Jesus takes the cake every time. So Father, uh, we come before you just as people who are super grateful for all that you are and all that you did. And uh, Father, I thank you that you, you rose again and you give us new life and that you're a God who's active and living and wants to be near us. I thank you for making a way for that. God, I just, uh, if there's a, you know, if there's a heaviness on any of our hearts, um, Father, would you lift that and just fill that with your love? And we say these things over and over again, and they become so cliche that you want to just love us, and you, and you love us so much, and all these things. 
But God, would that, would that, would that, would that not be cliche in this moment? That you love us. That you did everything you could while still letting us choose you to make a way for us to want to, to be close to you. God, we're so overwhelmed by that. And so in this time, as we worship, would you speak to us now? Um, would, you, uh, would, you, would you whisper to us as we worship uh, things that you want to tell us? Um, but first and foremost, God, we just, we just lay our, our, our hearts down now and go, uh, would you have your way? And would you be, uh, would you be king? Would you be Lord? And whatever thing that we hope that you do, you know, uh, the prayer request that we have, we have those for good reasons, but God, at the end of the day, we want you to be king of our hearts and we trust you with that job. We trust you with that position. You earned it, Father.